Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome to another edition of Moving to Live. This is part one of a two-part interview, and this is somebody that I am very excited to interview because, as I told him in an email, the final decision for starting Moving to Live was listening to him interview a well-known guest, and the guest said, some of the people doing the best work you never hear of because they don't work on their social media presence. I'm also excited because what I found is people who respond to moving to live very, very quickly when we request an interview, commonly make the best interviews. And my guest today is Dean Somerset. When I first contacted Dean, probably in late May or early June, we're doing this podcast at the end of August. Dean got back to me probably within two or three hours. And this is a cold email. So those of you out there who are wondering how we get our guests, some cases it's friends, some cases it's somebody I think is interesting and it's a cold email. And I cold emailed Dean, and within three hours, I had a response back that essentially said, I'm really, really busy the next couple of months, but contact me sometime in mid to late August, and we can talk about it more. I actually contacted him two days ago, and within three or four hours, he came back and said, what's your schedule like on Saturday? I know he's leaving for Europe coming up next week, and just from following some of his writings, and I know some of the things he has to say, and he has his own podcast, which you'll see in the show notes. I think he's got some great information about movement, and I'm excited about this. Dean, thanks for sitting down on a Saturday morning to talk to Moving to Live. Not a problem. Very glad to be here, Ben. I'm uh, always been a fan of talking to people who like to geek out on this kind of stuff, so it's always good to be able to kind of dip my toe into it again. I think one of the exciting things for Moving to Live is we've said when we started we want to have people who not only are well-known in the U.S. and also well-known around the world. Dean is our first international guest. Dean is from Canada, <laughs> um, which, no, it's not It's not the 51st state of the United States. It's a separate country. Yeah. And we were talking before we started to record, and we talked about different terminologies. 
And you said uh, you commonly introduce yourself to people who are not in the know or in the field as an exercise physio. I'm sorry, as a personal trainer. But if you could mm-hmm. tell us, for somebody's listening to this and they're saying, "Okay, why should I devote some time and listen to Dean Somerset?" What do you do, or who are you? Um, <laughs> big question, right? Who am I? I? I don't know. Where am I in this world? Um, the biggest things that I usually tell people are just that I'm a personal trainer because that's something that a lot of people can easily gravitate towards and they know what's going on. Um, if you tell people, like if you're in the medical field and you tell people that you're an endocrinologist or something like that, they might say, well, what is that? Unless they actually know what that is. If you say I'm a doctor, well, they get an idea of what you actually do. Um, so I'm not quite saying that I'm a doctor by any stretch of the the imagination, but I work with a lot of, uh, complex medical conditions. I'm a kinesiologist and certified exercise physiologist. So I've worked with people from heart transplants to, uh, quadruple bypasses to post-surgical recovery to joint replacement to, uh, Paralympian who just got back from Rio and won two silvers to a couple of pro athletes. So pretty much the full gambit as far as what you could do. Uh, Most of the people who come into me are referral based. So they're coming either from uh, a sport coordinator or a national team member or a pro scout or something like that, or they're coming from a doctor, a physical therapist, chiropractor. So they're usually coming in for a specific reason. I usually don't take on too many people who want to lose, you know, five or 10 or 20 pounds just because for time and cost, I know there are people out there that are way better at that than me and who could do a way better job. And it's also just something that doesn't truly interest me a lot, especially when I compare that to somebody who's got like massive heart issues or diabetes or many multiple medical things going on. So that's the kind of stuff that gets me interested because then you can see where the physiology actually changes when you get into a disease state. And I think that's something that's a really key thing that any listener needs to take away, especially if they're a young professional, find something that you're interested in. And I mean, many personal trainers are saying, I can do everything and maybe they can. But I think by saying, you know, these are the things that I do. And by saying, these are the people I enjoy working with, it means that you're not looking at the clock. I would imagine saying, oh God, how much longer before I move on to the next session? Mm Mm-hmm. So we want to talk more about how you got into that group of individuals that you work with. But before that, I think one of the most important things about moving to live and the important things for people who want to progress, in essence, the exercise world to make people recognize that this is a profession. It's not just somebody that you go to and they say, do this many sets, do this many reps, is how did you initially get into the field? I guess the question I like to ask everybody starting out is, were you an athlete and did you realize you weren't going to be a professional athlete or how did you make the decision when you uh, went to the university that I'm going to major in something exercise related? Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was always involved in athletics. Um, I grew up in a small town in British Columbia, which is the westernmost province in Canada. Um, because it was a small town, there wasn't a lot of experience or a lot of uh, availability to different sports other than things like hockey. And I just didn't like hockey. It, it, it's, I'm probably like one of six Canadians who doesn't play hockey or even know how to skate. So I played everything else I possibly could. But being in a small town where everyone plays hockey and nobody else plays anything else, um, the availability of different things was pretty limited. But even in those small towns, I sucked at everything I did. So I was absolutely terrible as an athlete. I got injured a lot and I was essentially approaching fitness as more of a a very, I guess you could say, selfish means. I wanted to learn how to do things better so I could become either a better athlete or lift more weight or look better or do all that kind of stuff. So 
most of my initial degree was based on how do I get stronger? How do I get bigger? How do I get faster? How do I do all that kind of stuff purely in my own interest? And could I relate it to my own worldview? And then from there, I started to think that, well, I could probably make this into a job because I like working out. I like being in the gym and it's kind of fun to be able to show other people how to do this stuff too. So it gravitated from being a purely selfish, self-centered interest to being one where I could probably help other people do stuff. And I like to joke that I became a physical education major in college because one of my first bio classes was a plant biology class and I hated it. When you went to the university, did you have the intention? I know, I know that there's a degree of kinesiology or degree of exercise science, or did you kind of fall into that? Or did somebody say, Hey, you need to check out this major? Well, when I was in high school, I, I met with a guidance counselor who was really good. And I, I told him that what I wanted to do was something involved with like sports or athletics. And he said, Oh, you should do a kinesiology degree. So I was like, okay, I've never heard of that word before. What is it? And it's all about like sports science and how your body actually adapts to exercise. And I thought, oh yeah, that's perfect. Sounds good. Let's sign me up. So put out a couple applications, wound up at the University of Alberta and finished a degree there. And then I was like, okay, now what do I do? I was trying to make a decision as far as whether to go into grad school for a master's in, I have no idea what, or going into physical therapy, which it's pretty tough to do. I mean, in Canada, the uh, physical therapy has now been moved into a master's program. So you have to have a degree to get into physical therapy and you have to be pretty much at the top of your class to get in there. I wasn't really at the top of my class. So I was thinking, well, if I don't get into this, what do I do? So I thought, oh, I'll go work at a commercial gym and be a personal trainer until something else comes along or until I figure out what I want to do. And I'm still there. So yeah, things change. <laughs> And I know in the United States, a lot of people, they say a lot of people are pre-medicine or pre-physical therapy and take the, until they take a bio class. Uh, yeah. in, in the United States, the physical therapy programs are gravitating towards master's or doctoral level programs too. Mm -hmm. I think one of the questions that you, if you go and you talk to many people who are in academia, they'll say, well, you, a bachelor's degree isn't enough. You need to go on and get a master's. So after working for a number of years, or even as you started working in the commercial gym, what made your decision to say, I don't think I need to go get additional uh, official education? Because I mean, I, I know from looking at your bio and the people that you interview and you talk and you rule as mentors, you've probably got at least a master's degree of experience. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I'll be completely honest. I only have a bachelor's degree and a couple of podcast episodes ago, I interviewed a buddy of mine, Jeff Halavy from Halavy Life in New York City and his gym setup. He will only hire people who have master's degrees. So I'm underqualified to work at his facility, which is kind of a, a funny thing, especially because he doesn't have a master's degree. And I kind of joke with him about that. But that's the bar that he set as far as what he wants to do. When I was looking at what my options were in terms of what I wanted to do or where I wanted to work. A master's degree would help in a couple of situations, but not ones where I was like, yeah, I'm fired up to do that. Like if I wanted to work in a lab setting or if I wanted to work in a research setting or work in something where I was teaching, yeah, definitely. Master's degree, 100% I'd need to go that route. If I wanted to do stuff where I was working on metabolic hearts or uh, hydrostatic weighing or anything along that line, yeah, master's would be it. But if I wanted to work just with average people or in some way in a little bit of a different vein, sort of like what I've been able to establish right now, the masters wouldn't really get me much further down that route and it wouldn't provide much more of a benefit to me than what I currently have. When I think about how much could I charge a master's degree wouldn't really add more than maybe a couple bucks onto my rate. 
And uh, talking with a couple of editors like Lou Schuler, who's a, a big prolific writer in the fitness industry, he's written a bunch of books and been an editor for things like Men's Health and Teen Nation and stuff like that. He said that of all the books that he's written or had co-authors on, the only people he's written with have had master's degrees, but he's open to having authors of other experience levels if they bring something unique to the table. He just feels that a master's adds a little bit more of the, the credential and experience behind it. But again, for what I was looking for, a master's degree didn't really seem like it would benefit me too much unless I wanted to change my career path and go something somewhere else. Did it ever occur to you or did you ever think, okay, a master's degree, I know in the, in the United States to do a master's degree, total cost would probably be somewhere between fifteen to 20000 Did you ever give the thought along the lines of, well, for that amount of money, I could go to a lot of continuing education with some big names that they might talk about in a master's degree program, but now I can go listen to this individual for three or four days. 100%. And I mean, the only difference between the cost for the continuing education program and the cost for a master's is just the letters that come after your name. And I, I'm not demeaning master's or anything like that by any stretch of the imagination. I would love to actually have a master's degree. But for the cost investment, you have to know coming out on the other side what your options are going to be and are they going to be better or worse or whatever. In terms of what I was looking at, I couldn't find a program that looked at what I wanted to look at in a way I wanted to see it. I talked with a couple of uh, advisors to say, you know, what could I do for this or that? Um, no one was actually lining up with what I was looking to get out of it. And the cost investment with it, it was just a lot more than what I was willing to spend. I mean, I was already 25000 in debt from student loans at that point. Being able to go into a master's program and getting another 20000 on top of that and spending more time in school where I was feeling pretty burnt out in school and needing to make a little bit of money. I was like, well, we'll see if I get back to a master's at a certain point in time. But uh, actually, a couple of years ago, just before I started writing my blog, I decided I wanted to try to see if I could get into medical school. So I decided to actually take the MCAT exam, studied for it for about six months, and bombed the living hell out of it. Um, apparently, you need to know chemistry to be a doctor. Who knew, right? But uh, a good thing that did come out of that is that I had gotten the top 5% of the writing sample internationally. So for that, it kind of gave me a direction to say, you know what, doctor, it's not going to be for you. But you know how to write well, so you might as well do something involving writing. And that kind of formed the, the career directive of me being able to say, well, maybe I should start a blog or maybe I should start writing about stuff, stuff that I know, stuff that I can put into some relatively informative and entertaining ways and be able to use that skill set that I have. And I think the last four or five minutes of us talking is something that should be extra or taken out as a single thing and given to every second semester junior or first semester senior in college and graduate school because I'm somebody who worked for a number of years before getting my doctorate. And mm -hmm. like you, I thought about it and considered what I wanted to do. And I'm still making payments for my doctoral degree for what I wanted to do. It was a good move. But I also know that at the time that I went to pursue it, I was working for an orthopedic surgeon and he wanted to be become, me to become a physician's assistant and become his main assistant. And I think mm -hmm. you hit on it in the first few minutes of our podcast where you said, I knew who I wanted to work with and I enjoyed it. So I think, I think you've done to me this for anybody who asks, I'll probably use this with my students saying, if you're not pursuing a master's for these reasons, think about what else you can do. And I, I think I think that's a, w a wonderful way of thinking it out, and I suspect I probably wasn't thinking that clearly when I graduated from my bachelor's degree and just assumed I was going to get a master's. 
Yeah. And I mean, when I graduated, I wasn't thinking clearly either. Like, I don't want people to go into this thinking, oh, well, I had everything all thought out and planned. I was at the point uh, about a year into being a personal trainer where I was thinking of quitting fitness and going and joining the oil and gas industry because it was easier money. But at the same time, it was something where I had no idea what I was doing when I graduated. And I still don't really think I know what I'm doing all that much. But uh, it's been an evolutionary process where I'm able to say, okay, this is cool. I can do this kind of stuff. I get to wear sweatpants to work. I get to, you know, come home and see my wife at the end of the day. I get to have days off once in a while. I get to talk with people like yourself from all over the world. So that's kind of a cool element to the job that I wouldn't get from the oil and gas industry. And now I'm at the point where I make more money than I would if I was in the oil and gas, unless I was like a VP or CEO or something like that, which probably wouldn't happen for a dude in fitness. And you probably wouldn't be able to wear sweatpants to work either. No. And uh, Edmonton and Northern Alberta get pretty cold in the winter. So I'd be wearing like 10 layers of stuff to be able to go out and work in the oil fields. I want to continue talking a little bit about your background and how you got there. Uh, I confess I'm looking at your webpage and I know some people are in the habit of acquiring multiple certifications everywhere <laughs> from the weekend certificate. You're kind of laughing and I, I, I know you're going to have a good take on this. Uh, for those of you who don't want to read show notes, you like to listen. Dean is a certified exercise physiologist from the Canadian Society of Exercise Physiologists, a certified strength and conditioning specialist from the National Strength and Conditioning Association and a medical exercise specialist from the American Academy of Health, Rehabilitation, and Fitness Professionals. For those of you who are going to listen to a lot of Moving to Live podcasts, so far everybody I've interviewed has been an NSCA member, and I promise you that's not a requirement. I'm not looking through the membership logs. But I do want to ask you, Dean, because I think people need to know that there are credible certifications and some certifications are better than others based on how difficult they are and also what you want to do. How did you decide on these three certifications and what was the first one you earned? Um, well, I've got more than that, but those are kind of the big ones that people tend to recognize the most. And they also give me kind of a, I guess you could say a professional designation. Um, the first one I got was the CSCS and I actually got that in my third year in university. Um, I qualified for that and had everything finished up pretty early. And then I wasn't able to actually get the certification until I'd graduated and finished my fourth year. So um, that was my first one. I, I got the CEP certification probably about five years ago. So that was a, a long slug to get through that one. It was about a six month process to get that finished up. Uh, the MES certification, I got that in my first year after my degree. So I got that one just to be able to give a little bit of uh, credence to the medical end of things. If I'm able to say that medical exercise is something I have a certification in, then people are able to see that and be a little bit more at ease with it. But uh, in terms of what it gives me in terms of things like insurance coverage or whatever, um, the CEP seems to be the one that gets the most benefit for me overall for that. Um, the CSCS is something that helps out a lot when it comes to international publications. If I'm ever quoted in men's health or anything like that, they always list out the CSCS. Um, it also helps when it comes to like sport performance kind of stuff where, uh, a national team member will be able to say, oh, this guy's got a CSCS. Okay, cool. But, uh, a lot of the time, like I've got a lot of other courses that I've taken, that give a certification that I just don't list out because, you know, it doesn't give me more or a lot of people who, who would be looking at that would look at it and say, oh, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that does or where that takes me. 
So I've taken a lot of courses where I get a two day certification after it. And then I'll see people online who list out every course and certification they've ever taken. It's like CPR level one. Great. Why did you put that on your business card? Like that's not something that is going to be important whatsoever. Like what are, if you're going to pick stuff, make it stuff where it's like, well, now you can get third party payers from insurance or now you can get an editor for a magazine to actually pay attention to you. If you put CPR on there, that's kind of a given that you should have those. I, I, th- I think it's funny. I've served on my department uh, tenure and promotion committee, and there are people, as you said, who it's not just their vitas or uh, resumes; it's their business cards that have what I like to call the alphabet soup. Yeah, and I would imagine, as you said, with the, these three, open the doors, and if you're dealing with a physician, and if he's not aware of some of the certifications. Sorry, I had a phone call there, but Not gone. A <laughs> At least so, yeah. 1835. We'll just cut that out. Okay. Uh, so so I, think, I think one of the things that Dean has done a good job of, of explaining to us is why he lists certain certifications and why he earned them. I suspect many people who are in the movement and exercise field have numerous certifications. And I know we do have a credibility problem in the field, especially if you look in some of the lay media, just because there are people of such a great degree or such a variety of educational backgrounds from somebody who spends years getting their accreditations, certifications and experience to somebody who likes to work out and says, well, I can get online and in the next 20 minutes, I can become a certified personal trainer. So I think part yeah. of part of our job as podcasters or as educators is to explain to people, these are the important ones or this, this is what opens a door. This is what it took to get that. And I'm sure you don't do that with every client. But I'm sure that you also have some clients who referred to you and maybe you're less than enthusiastic about exercise and they say, well, what's this medical exercise specialist thing on your business card? What does that mean? Yeah. And when you can, so, when you can explain, it's kind of like the light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, okay. I trust you more than I trust the guy in my local big box gym. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many certifications and courses that are just kind of like – popping up as for-profit courses or something like that. Like I saw one the other day, it was certified body positivity coach. I'm like, Oh, okay. What does that actually mean? And how did you actually get that? And like, there's so many different things. Like I'm not saying the body positivity is bad by any stretch, but when, when a certification comes out like that, I'm thinking, well, what did you actually take from it? And what are you using to be able to give to somebody else? And if I go to a gym across the street, are they actually going to say, oh, yeah, that's a good certification? Or are they going to be like, what the heck is that? So, yeah, I actually make a joke whenever I do um, any kind of presentations, you know, how it's got the little uh, person who's doing the talk and say Dean Somerset, BSC kinesiology, blah, 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 blah. Towards the end, I'll put in something like D-Y-E-L, do you even lift? And then I-D-G-A-F, I don't give a bleep. <laughs> or LMFAO or something like that. So those will be like my credentials at the end of my bio piece in any of my presentations. And I, I noticed from looking through your website that there are, there are a few areas where you list things like that also, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah. I, which I think it's key not to take yourself too serious with that and say, well, you know, I'm a certified exercise physiologist. Like, yeah, you can also be an idiot too. Yeah, it's cool. You teach people how to squat. You're not curing cancer. So don't hold yourself that high. <laughs> so you've got these certifications, you're working in a big box gym, and I know from looking at your bio that you do a little bit more than just personal training because you also do education, which if you think of the 
traditional view of a personal trainer is they work in a gym. And if you talk to the, to many of them, they say, yeah, I did that for a while, but you're limited to some extent in the number of hours in the week to who you can work with one-on-one or in group exercise. And mm-hmm. you've expanded beyond that and you do your own education. I know you, you, uh, speak all over the world. How did that come about? Or how did you go from Dean Somerset working in a big box gym, gradually gaining a variety of certifications and some curiosity and realizing maybe I'm not supposed to be a, a medical doctor to, you know, I've got good information that I can give to not only my clients, but also to other professionals who maybe are what I would think is either ab- above me as far as they've advanced more professionally or maybe somebody who I could help out. So you're just saying I can do more than just give to my clients. Well, part of that was working in a, a big gym. Um, we At one point, there was over 22 locations, I think, between Edmonton and Calgary. So I was doing uh, some of the continuing education for them. So the easiest buy-in is to be able to get an easy option to get into things where you can do things either cheap or on demand. And uh, for teaching, it was great because I was able to do probably about 150 different presentations at one point or another before I actually started expanding that um, to the trainers in our club. So I was able to actually get somewhat decent at presenting before I actually opened it up further. Um, By doing the continuing education, then I opened up my blog and started doing some writing and getting a little bit of notoriety. And then I was getting a couple of invite offers from people where I was, uh, they were just contacting me cold and saying, hey, do you want to come present to our staff of trainers or do you want to host a workshop here? And I thought, well, sure, why not? Seems cool. Get a trip to London or get a trip to St. Louis or maybe to New York and talk about fitness stuff and make a couple of bucks along the way. Maybe if anything, it just pays off a portion of the travel expenses, but they eventually it started becoming a little bit more lucrative and I was able to generate a little bit more revenue from it. So um, it's something that's definitely been an evolutionary process. Like the first time I taught a workshop internationally, like internationally down in the States, I think I had maybe 15 people show up for it. And uh, now we're putting people like Tony Gentlecore and I co-teach a lot of workshops. We're getting 40 to 50 people in a room paying a decent price, but still we want to over deliver on what we give as far as the value that they get and the interaction that they get. So we try to make it as high energy, fun, upbeat as possible while talking about things like scapular humoral rhythm or uh, acetabular antiversion or any of that kind of stuff. But uh, at the same time, it's been something that over the last six years has led to a lot of good possibilities. But the easiest answer to give is that I started doing it kind of cheap or for free in our club and then started expanding it out once I had a enough of an experience to be able to say, okay, I can actually do something with this. And once I started getting offers, that kind of pushed the door open even further. And when you first started doing it in these, this big club, was this, did they come to you or did you say they were doing, see that they were doing continuing education and think to yourself, you know, I might like to do this and go to somebody who is your superior. Um, the, the second answer, actually, like we had a continuing education program in place, but it was kind of haphazard. It was more like, well, this trainer here, he teaches this thing and this trainer over here, he teaches that thing. So I approached him and said, why don't we actually develop a curriculum? Why don't we do something where it's like in order to move from the first level of a trainer to the second level, to the third, fourth, whatever, they have to have shown competency by attending X number of courses or these specific features of courses. And here's what I can do to be able to lay in some of the coursework. Here's what we can expand on. Here's where it could benefit the trainers and benefit the company overall. So I laid it out as a pretty good um, business plan to go into it. And they jumped at it and said, yeah, here, do it. Let's, let's get this off the floor and get moving. 
So now we actually have a curriculum in place where trainers, in order to move from level one to level two, they have to have completed so many courses and they have to have been able to show competency with what they're doing. Then in order to move from level two to three, same thing, level three to four, same thing. So uh, that's been a really cool thing to be able to establish and see get put into place. And we're trying to do kind of a bit of a revamp on it right now where we're looking at what specific metrics we're looking to track as far as competency would be. So we're trying to see if can trainers show proficiency in the education that they're working with, but can they also train trainers or train uh, their clients in that aptitude to be able to see what they're actually doing. So it's something that we're just kind of going through a beta test on right now to expand. But that was essentially the biggest component that led to me being able to talk, (laughs) being able to have that opportunity in-house to be able to do it on a low-cost method. It sounds like, and am I correct in saying this, that you still work with that gym that you started with doing this continuing education? Yeah, absolutely. And And obviously moved beyond that. Yeah. And I mean, the good thing about the gym that I work with is that they were very forward thinking in what they were willing to let me do uh, because I was able to provide a lot of value to them for things like continuing ed. I developed a medical exercise program where other physical therapists, chiropractors, doctors were sending their patients into us for exercise training. And then that developed into a wing of the continuing ed on the medical exercise side. So in order for a trainer to work with a medical referral, they had to complete the curriculum for it. So for that, that we're able to show direct value and direct financial benefit to the company for me being there. So as a result, I was able to get just a little bit more leeway and say, hey, when I do this, I want to be able to do this on the side because this helps to bring business into world health. This helps to bring other trainers into world health. This helps to do a whole bunch of different things. And they were able to see the benefit from it and allow me to do some of the side stuff. Clearly, things are growing and you're progressing in the variety of things that you do. On, an, on a typical week still, about how many clients do you see one-on-one and how has that changed from when you first started working as a personal trainer? Now, um, my hours are about 45 hours a week where I'm actually training or working with clients, or at least that's what I have the scheduled availability for. Um, when I first started out, it was about 90 hours a week just because I was a, a broke former college student who needed to pay off debt and actually buy a couch. So, uh, I was at kind of the bottom of the pay grade working 90 hours a week. Uh, I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. I had, then I eventually got a girlfriend turned into a fiance turned into wife, but, uh, I, I just worked all day, all night because that's the only thing I could do. I didn't have money for fun stuff or anything like that. So, uh, it was just work, work, work. And when you enjoy what you're doing, it's more fun, but also it allows you to learn a lot faster if you're willing to put in way more hours. I mean, you think about a doctor when they go through, any of the residency, none of them do 40 hour weeks. When you're in there, you're, you're there to learn. You're there to learn hard and you're there to learn fast. So I was thinking of it sort of like that was my uh, residency or my articling or my uh, apprenticing or whatever, but I didn't have anyone as a supervisor directly over top of me. So I had to do it all on my own. And when you first started then, did you ever think you'd be in the position you are now to go internationally and present and actually have people pay you to do it? It was always kind of a moonshot goal, but at the, at that time I couldn't see it because there was just too much between where I was and where I wanted to be. So it was one of those kind of fun things where it was like, well, I'm just going to work really hard and try to not drown under debt. And then when I eventually can afford a two bedroom condo, then maybe we'll see what I can do from there. 
I want to talk more about this in the second part of the interview. I want to finish up the first part of the interview because, as I said at the beginning, what I find most interesting about interviewing people for Moving to Live is finding out their stories, their backgrounds, so that when you read something that you write in your blog post or see one of your podcast, rather listen to one of your podcasts, like, oh, I can see where he came from that. Mm-hmm. And I've been fortunate enough so far that everybody I've interviewed is not only a practitioner and that they're doing something with athletes or active individuals, but they also do activities themselves or they stay active. I know it's so common to go to some of these conferences and talk to people and they say, well, I just don't have time to do this. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit I've stalked you on Instagram the last few months and clearly you still do something because not only did you recently have a back injury, but now you're posting Instagram videos showing what you're doing to rehab the back injury. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I should have known better. Um, my nephew is a 17 year old hockey player and he came up to stay with us for a week to train and I was showing him a a rotational medicine ball throw where you jump from one foot to the other and then jump back off and explode. And it was at the end of a, a long day and I'd already done two major trips Uh, driving eight hours each way in the past three weeks. My back was feeling a little bit tight. I shouldn't have jumped into it as hard and fast as I did. And it just said, no, you're done. (laughs) So after that, it's like, well, yeah, no, okay. It's not letting me sleep. It's not letting me sit. It's not letting me walk. And so I got to rebuild this. I know how I've got the tools. Let's go full on Steve Austin mode and we can rebuild him and get back into action again. So you can add another few initials to your business card or your resume. Do as I say, not as I do. Well, no, I mean, everyone's going to get injured one way or another. And I did this stuff to be able to get back to it. And I can actually touch my toes now and uh, deadlifted 135 the other night and didn't actually have my spine explode. So that was a good day. Started out as somebody who wasn't very good in athletics, but enjoyed the movement, went into a profession my two favorite questions that I try to ask most of the people we interview, the first one is, what's the most unusual, different, strange, or abnormal to you physical or movement activity that you've done in the past, and would you do it again? I took a yoga class once. That was kind of interesting. Um, it's not something that I really do a lot of, but just to be able to see what the thought process was and how it was adapting. Um, the downside with that course, and I know every instructor is a little bit different, but everyone had to do kind of the same stuff. I don't really have a lot of flexibility with my feet right together doing something like a downward dog. So when I do that, it kind of pulls on my SI joint and it actually hurts a little bit. So I'm like, you know, I'm just going to open my feet. The instructor comes over and like, taps my feet and tries to get me to put my feet back together and then pushes down on my SI. And I'm like, you're a hundred pounds. I'm 240. You're not winning this battle. I don't care what you think. Um, I was just like, yeah, it's just not going to go. So I think she was almost doing a handstand trying to get my hips down. And I was like, nope, that's just not happening. So thinking of it from uh, what's the risk to reward, I thought, you know, yoga probably isn't going to be good for me on that. And again, nothing against yoga. It was just, I wasn't enjoying it too much. So I just didn't do it. Uh, also being somewhat bigger rock climbing. That was a fun day. My arms, I think they're finally not sore anymore. And if you know, rock climbers are usually very small, wiry, long limbed people. I'm not small and wiry. So yeah, I, I tend to fall like the rock I'm supposed to be climbing. And would you try the rock climbing again? I don't know. I mean, it was just one of those things that I didn't really jive with. I'm like, okay, well, why, why don't I just like throw a rope up there and climb? Why don't I, you know, get a helicopter or something like that? It just seemed like it was a process where 
yeah, the, the joy of the activity just wasn't there for me. I mean, I like to bike. I'll go and bike a hundred kilometers. My wife's a, a track cyclist and road cyclist. So she'll be there way faster than I ever will. But I like to go out and bike around, do some mountain biking or lift heavy weights and, you know, once in a while run stairs. But aside from that, it's like, well, I know the activities I enjoy doing and I don't really feel a need to push myself to stuff that I don't enjoy or don't want to do just because it's something that's there. So staying away from the latest trends just because they're trends and picking things that you enjoy doing. Not necessarily. I mean, if you want to give it a try and you're like, oh, that looks neat. Yeah, go for it. See what you think. But if you don't like it, why would you keep doing it? If you enjoy it and it's something that gives you a lot of benefit at the end of the day and you feel great afterwards, cool. You found a new activity. Do it. But if it's something where um, you just don't jive with it, you got to know the difference on that. Think of it like being on a bad date. Why would you keep going back if it's a bad date? You know? cut losses and say, screw it, done. And with that, one final question for this first part, is there any movement or exercise activity that's on your bucket list that you don't know whether or not you'll enjoy it, you don't know whether or not you'll be good at it, but you th you're thinking, you know, at some point I'm going to try to do this activity just to see what it's all about? Um, Not really one that I've got on a bucket list. I mean, I've done a lot of things in terms of like sports and I uh, had a lot of experience that way. So there's not one that I'm like, oh, well, I don't have that available. I wouldn't mind doing something like skydiving once. But uh, yeah, that's something that I don't think is like an activity base per se, but it's something I've always kind of been interested in doing. Um, then just doing things like rappelling, kind of fun too, and being able to go down the rock instead of going up it. So you want to do something that allows you to work with gravity instead of against it. Yeah, I'm really good at falling. So I want to take advantage of that. We've had the good fortune to be talking with Dean Somerset. Dean is, to the layperson, a personal trainer. But if you listen to his bio, you can tell he's more than what you think of when you think of the personal trainer. We're going to come back shortly with part two of the interview where we want to dig in a little bit more to how Dean arrives at his thought processes and get some advice that he gives to either other professionals who are saying, you know, I'm willing to work the 70 to 90 hours a week to start out, but I'm not sure exactly where to put my time. And I think Dean will also have some great ideas for maybe somebody who's thinking about becoming physically active, isn't really sure who they need for expertise, and maybe Dean can give us some tips and some ideas as far as what you need to look for for somebody who's going to have a great deal of responsibility for your body. And not all of us are going to have the background of Dean when somebody pushes on your back in a yoga class to say, uh, no, I don't think that's what you want to do for me right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.